all right this is like take 14 or something just no no place no how wanted to be quiet today so let's begin this podcast um welcome back to fringe religion my name is zelda reed if you're new here welcome i hope you sit and rest for a spell if you're returning after my last episode thank you i'm glad you enjoyed it um the whole theory with this show the whole praxis behind this show is making religious studies academia a bit more accessible to the public and a bit more approachable you know we're not trying to have an ivory tower here i just want things to be fun and i want to explore uh some little pockets of religious studies that are maybe poo-pooed a little bit and if that mission really speaks to you i would implore you to give me some money on patreon.com forward slash fringe religion it is definitely not a lucrative thing to get into religious studies so any and all support that you can shell out to the podcast i would greatly appreciate whether it is a five-star review or sharing it with a friend or a forum or uh, subscribing to the patreon and if you'd like to keep up via social media, you can follow me at fringe.religion on Instagram. And if you have any email inquiries for either guests that you'd like to have on or um, questions or anything like that, you can email fringereligionpod at gmail.com. I'm going to be answering a lot of questions from those for my bonus content on Patreon. And I am also going to be answering the more general ones at the end of my episodes so that you can sort of interact with the person behind the project. Um, yeah, so let's get into it. unicorns it's uh, a a culturally ubiquitous symbol at this point i think it's safe to say um and let me walk you through what led me to land on unicorns so this is about three weeks ago i'm at the met cloisters which if you don't know well cloisters first of all it's like an outdoor indoor courtyard church sort of situation for um like monks and nuns things like that for people to uh cloister in if you will um but the met cloisters were never actually used for that they were just built in that style so it could be reminiscent of european cloisters where a lot of art is kept um i think it was built by or at least heavily endowed by John D. Rockefeller, if I'm not mistaken, and it was basically just like, it's industrial New York, we want it to look old and medieval too. So they bought a bunch of medieval art, um, a lot of really famous medieval art, and they shipped it to uh, northern New York City. And they, yeah, it's, it's very beautiful there. The outdoor is very beautiful. Um, and it's crazy to think that they just did that because of vibes. Anyways, so I'm walking around. I'm having a little day to myself at the cloisters. I'm enjoying the nearby parks, all the flowers. I'm enjoying the indoor-outdoor courtyard, the ambiance of what would it be like to be um, like 
a nun in 1200 or whatever because all of the art at the cloisters is medieval art because I guess that's when cloisters had their heyday. Um, So all of the art is from like, you know, medieval era, which is like 500 CE to like 1500 CE, all late medieval art. So I'm walking around looking at these like reliefs and statues, mainly they're saints or Virgin Marys or little baby Jesuses or little crucified Jesuses, very canonically biblical. And then there's this whole room, which is, uh, according to some people and according to my personal opinion, the piece de resistance in, um, in the cloisters. It's this hall of tapestries, these really beautiful tapestries that all depict a hunt of a unicorn. Um, and coincidentally, these tapestries are called the hunt of the unicorn tapestries. They're from about 1495 to 1505. They were originally from Belgium. And I was just sort of awestruck, one, by the hilarity of medieval art. I love that everybody in medieval times just thought babies looked like terrible old pruny men, but on the body of a baby and dogs apparently looked just like the faces of dudes, but on the body of a dog. So I was cracking up looking at all of these uh tapestries i mean they're really beautifully woven and i'm like for all the time that you're putting into making this you think you'd look at a dog and maybe look and see that that's not what it looks like (laughs) but anyways so in between all that charm all of a sudden it strikes me that i'm like whoa i've only been looking at saints all day and you know portraits of jesus all day why why all of a sudden am I looking at a unicorn? Why why is it that I'm looking at a unicorn? Because nothing else was really giving like folk art like that. It was all very church art. So I was perplexed and bewitched by this unicorn. And the little captions that explained the tapestries were sort of just like, yeah, um, people don't really know if it's like, a Christian thing or if it's a pagan thing it's just sort of they're everywhere in medieval art so you know here they are um and then as I'm ruminating on this in the coming days it was just everywhere I'm seeing unicorns I'm seeing children on the subway with unicorns on their shirt I'm reading a book and it's about uh there's this little insert about uh, a virgin embroidering a unicorn onto a tablecloth or something like that um there's the last unicorn the movie from like 1968 i think or 62 that was living in my memory and i rewatched it unrelated to this and i was just sort of like wow what is the symbolism of this where did unicorns come from and why why in a time when the church was so heavily influencing art why were unicorns given the A-OK? And what about the symbol of the unicorn has remained so potent in our cultural imagination since, since then, since like 1495? And in the process of this research, I actually found out that the history of unicorns stretches so much earlier than that which is insane to me. We're going to get into that in just a second. But yeah, between 
like despicable me hot topics it it's also the national animal of scotland it's just we're we're obsessed we're obsessed as a society as a globe it's unicorns are everywhere not only in america but kind of everywhere um yeah so it's this has been an interesting research wormhole that has spanned continents and millennia and um yeah so let's let's dive in i'm just gonna describe the tapestries and the cloisters so you know what it's all about um so like i said around 1495 in belgium uh it's unknown if they're meant to be in a complete series but if so if you're sort of reading the progression of the images it would go something like this there's richly dressed noblemen accompanied by huntsmen and hounds the whole nine yards and they're pursuing a unicorn this white equine beast with a single horn akin to a narwhal tusk and the tail of like a goat or a lion not like a horse's tail so this whole little parade is in pursuit of a unicorn and they bring the animal to bay with the help of a maiden who traps it with her charm and allure and then there's a frame where or a tapestry where they appear to kill it or at least by my layman's perspective stabbing it a bunch of times to the point where the the bard of the band is literally draining the blood with his horn so it seems as though the unicorn is dead they're dragging the bloody body back to the castle and then in the last panel the unicorn in captivity as it's called the unicorn is shown alive again chained to a pomegranate tree surrounded by a fence in a field of flowers so if this is read in a series immediately you're like resurrection what what's going on with there again we don't know if it is meant to be read in a series but as we will see later on this sort of hunt motif of the unicorn is pretty pretty global you know like this is you can't have a unicorn without having the pursuit these panels speak to the symbols that are like most prominent to artists at that time also a fun fact that i loved about the tapestries is that they were lost for centuries um especially during the aftermath of the french revolution and uh parts were cut out and things like that and then they were discovered again in like 1850 being used to like haul vegetables by some peasants uh, and i love that like these these like really elegant beautiful tapestries were literally just being used to like haul some potatoes for potentially like 200 years something like that anyways from there let's walk it backwards and see how the unicorn got to be on those tapestries and how the unicorn got to be on all those little hot topic uwu t-shirt memes so let's dive in indus river valley civilization you may have heard about it in school around 2300 to 1700 bce so we're talking two millennia before the common era just to just to snap you back into like how old civilization is so indus river valley which is 
near the Himalayas, uh, near the Hindu Kush region of northern India, um, we see unicorns, or at least like these one-horned bovine animals, on seals and terracotta statues. So, just to just to contextualize already, quite literally, one of the earliest if not the earliest example of civilization that people point to as like, oh, we're making art now, they already were were drawing one-horned animals. So, which, you know, I was skeptical about. I was like, is that really a unicorn? It's, it's like an ox with a horn. And to be fair, on the seals, it is being viewed from a profile. But that was quickly dispelled because it seems that the drawings of things in profile with two horns still, you know, there's a differentiation between two horns. You can still see that it has explicitly two horns. Um, And then bringing it into the 3D, there were also the terracotta statues. Pretty, Pretty definitively like an animal that's like maybe an ox with a single horn popping up already around 1700 BCE two decades or not decades two millennia before jesus is uh before jesus is walking around you know that's um that was crazy to me that was crazy to me and then in iran in the eighth or ninth century bc we see uh bronze statues representing more of like a goat with a single horn so that's about you know we don't have like too much too much else to go from this is like early 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 civilization so really how much do we have to work off of but here's here's my little theory um in the third and fourth century bc we get silver coins where we see images of these unicorns um with sacred i believe it's pronounced peepal trees p-i-p-a-l peepal trees and other symbols of worship, like a censer, uh, one of those little swingy things that you use to incense the space, in ancient India around the same Indus Valley area. So, since it's on the money, honey, it's perhaps through this means that we see those images migrate towards the Mediterranean and towards China. So, we have these images of... um, Also, I'd just like to point out that the association already of this, like, single-horned animal and then, you know, religious or belief-based iconography with these trees that were, like, held up as sacred and also the censor. Um, So, already a correlation between the, the, like, divinity of these things or the power of these things, enough so that you would want to put them on your money. So they're on silver coins, and that is what I think is probably a really plausible way for how it migrates out of India from there. And this is still, again, 3rd, 4th century BC. So later, we see a theme of the seduced unicorn across India in um, Buddhist, Jainist, and Hinduist art. I I was reading something that said Hinduist. I've never heard the term Hinduist before, but maybe that's, maybe that's canon. I don't know. And here is, here is what I've read about that. And 
again at this point, at this point, it's not the equine unicorn, you know, it's still like goat bull thing with a horn. And a lot of these early examples around the first century BC that we see in like India in Buddhist, Jain and Hindu art is is on reliefs and like carvings and things like that. So here is the the myth that was associated with that that I came across in my research. So the horn accumulates a sket I struggle with this word so much. Ascetic? Ascetic. <laughs> the horn accumulates ascetic heat called tapas, which was like associated with drought and dryness, which that this is a theme that will prevail across all associations of the unicorn. And then the maiden transforms it into a sexual heat called kama or fertility. So what we see in these reliefs is already an association between the maiden and the single horned animal. Um, and it's together, I don't know if this is like canon, but this is what I read. Together, it sort of balances the cosmic order. You know, the ascetic, <laughs> the ascetic uh, drought, like chastity, things like that. And then the the fertility of like a maiden and together it's what what represents the like two sides of life i guess and this is our first pretty pretty much cut and dry uh association of the unicorn with fertility which is something that will prevail and then it migrates more towards china within the subsequent like 400 years which i'm not gonna go into because then it takes on a life of its own there uh in the form of a quilin a Q-I-L-I-N, Aquilin, which is like a hybrid animal with a single horn in the Northern Wei period of China, so 4th century CE, and it's adapted into the Kirin in Japan and Vietnam. And I won't go into that one, I'm just going to leave that there, because then that sort of becomes more of like a scaled figure, um, it has like scales, uh, looks more like a dragon, more like a minotaur almost, with a single horn. In terms of the tapestries, I think uh, the Quilin takes on a life of its own in East Asia. Meanwhile, the more like bovine unicorn that we see in like Buddhist gene and Hindu art, as it goes west, it then takes on the form that we later come to see dominate medieval art. As the more bovine unicorn, travels east for you know more adventures and seduction and taking on a whole new form that's more more like lizard like the equine unicorn travels west to do the same so keep in mind these original associations of fertility are not lost they travel with the stories of the unicorn so presumably via these silver coins and tales from persian and india we happen upon Tesis who's a Greek naturalist, writing a travel log about India in the 4th century BC, spelled C-T-E-S-I-S. He, he has not actually, in, in my knowledge or research, he has not actually traveled to Persia or India, but he was like, oh, for all of the Greeks, we need to know a bit more about what's going on eastwards, so we're going to write about it. And in this travel log he apparently took anecdotes coming 
uh, westwards from Persian travelers specifically about the geography, the lay of the land, the animals that are in India, in Persia, all of that. So Tesis in the 4th century BC writes, There are in India certain wild asses which are as large as horses and larger. Their bodies are white, their heads dark red, and their eyes dark blue. They have a horn on the forehead which is about a foot and a half in length, and the dust filed from this horn is administered as a protection potion against deadly drugs. So, written down in the literature, in the literature, you know, 4th century BC is the magical potential of unicorns. So, beforehand, we're seeing we're seeing the associations already between the the potential divinity or magic of unicorns, what with them being associated with this sacred tree, them being associated with balancing the cosmic order through fertility and drought and things like that. But now, in Greece, it's written down that it's magical. And I don't know where the where the medicinal thing came from. I did not trace that, but either way, that's what they told him, and he was like, okay. So, keep in mind that this is a Greek naturalist. This is like a guy who's recording natural history. This is not mythology. So, even Aristotle fully wrote about unicorns existing in India. This is sort of, you know, a phase where I get sad because I think about the burning of the Library of Alexandria in 48 BC. So, up until this point, you know, up until 48 BC, it's like we we don't know how much was lost in there. Maybe they wrote that unicorns were entirely in existence and that they were just hunted out of extinction for their horns and like we wouldn't know that. We would not know that. I'm just saying I I bet there's a lot of archaeologists out there that are really itching to happen upon that fossil. And in my research, you know, I, I think I read a few of them. There were a lot of people that were, like, holding out hope that um, for all of the iconographic representation of unicorns we have, or at least, you know, like, one-horned goat, horse, ox figures that we have, they were like, who, who knows? Who knows? You know? So, um, considering the burning of the Library of Alexandria in 48 BC. This is this is what we have in terms of like written record from that area that we can piece together. Caesar even writes about unicorns in the year 70 in his account of the Gallic War. And then we have Pliny the Elder, who I don't know much about. He was um, an, an old Greek dude people trusted presumably and wrote things that people read. I don't know. In 100 CE, he also adds a description of the unicorn, which is still pretty jumbled. It's book eight of natural history, if you guys want to go and find it. And this is what he has to say on the matter. The fiercest animal, the unicorn, has a body like a horse, a head like a deer, feet like an elephant, a tail like a boar. It has a deep bellow, a single black horn two cubits long projecting from the middle of its forehead, and it is impossible to capture this animal alive. This I mainly included because this was where we get the word unicorn from, because this is in the 
his account of natural history under the word monoceros, which is Latin for unicorn. So anyways, from, you know, Thesis to Caesar to Pliny the Elder to Aristotle, these early accounts outline the qualities that become associated with the mythological unicorn, mainly speed, ferocity, invincibility, healing powers, elusiveness, and seduction. As you're going to see, it's like still very much associated with the maiden. And then this is also around the era when people start uh, trying to push a bit of a biblical narrative on this. And the first example that we see of that is Tertullian, uh, the Carthaginian author around 190 CE, writes that the unicorn is the perfect symbol for Christ and the horn is the representation of the cross. I don't really know how that, I don't really know how that um, fits in, that the horn is the cross. I, I respect his hustle though, but um, let it be known that it was, it was pretty much Tertullian who was first like, hey guys, ring the little bell, this symbol that's already being used super widely amongst like our writings and the way that we speak would be a really good allegory for Jesus. And that does not go unattended to, trust me. This is where unicorns take off. It's around 2nd century CE, and this is where unicorns are, like, not gonna, not gonna ever be taken out of cultural imagination because we have the publication of the Physiologus, which is widely replicated, widely translated, and widely spread throughout the Mediterranean region, um, and it was basically an undertaking to explain the natural world and everything going on in it but it's a didactic uh which is like an instructional it's a didactic christian text that was made in alexandria and basically like every every entry is like here's an animal here's what it's about here's the myth around this animal and here is an allegory for how it's the life of jesus so unicorns in the physiologus are written down as um an allegory for christ's incarnation like jesus becoming made man on earth so this is only you know two centuries after the crucifixion and it, it's pretty much becoming canon because this was spread to like ethiopia armenia syria the physiologus it's like I can't even think of, like, an equivalent now of, like, a book everybody's read. Um, my year of rest and relaxation. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. Like, The Outsiders. I, I, what do people read? What do people read in school? Either way, you get the impression. This was, like, this was, like, the Webster's Dictionary of Mediterranean world. It's official. It's real. It's deep at this point. So, so here's, here's what's written about it, just so you guys have context about how our developing images of the unicorn progresses. And again, this is like big pop-off for the unicorn. He is a small animal. So, you know, not like Pliny's larger than a horse. He is a small animal, like a kid, baby goat, 
but surprisingly fierce for his size, with one very sharp horn on his head, and no hunter is able to capture him by force. Yet there is a trick by which he is taken. Men lead a virgin to the place where he most resorts and leaves her there alone. As soon as he sees the virgin, he runs and lays his head on her lap. She fondles him and he falls asleep. The hunters then approach and capture him and lead him to the place of the king. So guys, this, this, the physiologus writing, writing the lore of the unicorn, it, it kind of sets it in stone. And also let it be known that the Byzantine church aka the church of the holy roman empire aka like the state and governing body that's about to take over like most of europe and the mediterranean for the better part of a millennium byzantine church art is pulled directly from the physiologus like people are like oh what's we have to find all of the animals in god's kingdom to put in this mosaic they go to the physiologus and at this point it's such a colloquial standard so many people know about this book and so many people both like learned and unlearned have unlearned unlearned can you tell i've been reading too many like medieval primary source documents this week the unlearned but people who are both like scholars and can read and people who cannot read are seeing these images because the physiologus is also illustrated so across the board it's like a big deal now that this mythic animal is written into a natural history so being very real and very really can be captured by a maiden who fondles him and he goes to sleep and don't worry there will be many puns about that to come the medieval jesters had a great time cracking up about that so in the third century ce Alexandrian scholars translated the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek and replaced the Hebrew word ra'em, meaning, you know, like a wild ox or an oryx, it's like an old animal, with the word monoceros. So, let that simmer in from the 3rd century onwards. The Old Testament has or at least as it's translated into like Latin and subsequently Greek and subsequently English, it has the the word unicorn mentioned nine times. The current King James version of the Bible mentions the word unicorn nine times. And again, the original Hebrew word ra'em is more closely associated with an oryx, which is like an antelope type of thing. But they got, they got, they put the flourish on that. They put the flourish on that for real. So we have, if you're a biblical fundamentalist, like unicorn is in there. So if anything, this shows the fallibility of translations and the cultural temperature that informs those linguistic decisions throughout the generations. Because again, we're in third century CE. So this is after the Physiologus was published and is like widely circulating and has been for probably a hundred years and they're like wow these unicorns are really catching on we love that we love that for them so um let's put it in the bible it's just a, a nice check-in to be like okay let's uh 
Let's think about how we interpret the Bible, perhaps a little metaphorically. I don't know. Perhaps a little not so literally. Anyways, at this same time, with the rise of the Middle, middle Ages, Medieval Ages, I forget they're the same thing. The Middle Ages, with the rise of the Middle Ages, bestiaries start to be published too. And so the bestiaries are also pulling from the physiologus because, uh, and for those of you who don't know, bestiaries are just sort of like a medieval encyclopedia, maybe has a few like jokes in there about it. They're a little cheeky. People love bestiaries. People want to know, people want to know what's going on, what's around them. So to quote from uh, The Lore of the Unicorn by Odell Shepard, the unicorn was intimately associated by the bestiaries with the central mystery of the Christian faith and collaborated by a document which even the semi-learned regarded as authoritative, and by that he means uh, the physiologus. The unicorn was at length firmly fixed in the popular imagination of Europe and also the larger Mediterranean area as a whole. But we have people very deeply involved in the church talking about unicorns People are eating this up. And of course, the church is the main means by which people are given access to written documents and to have somebody that's able to read and tell them what's written down on these things. So as these bestiaries and as writings like the Physiologus are getting increasingly woven in with like Christian rhetoric, you see people like St. Basil talk about the glory, power, and salvation of the unicorns, so much so that he says Jesus should be called the son of unicorns. Then we also have people like St. Ambrose, a lot of saints saying this. This is one of my favorite quotes. St. Ambrose in the fourth century says, who, who is the unicorn but the only begotten son of God? That, that gave me pause. That really gave me pause. Who is the unicorn but the only begotten son of God? Like, imagine you're sitting, you're sitting on some rickety, rickety pews in medieval Europe. You're, you got lice all over your body. You haven't showered in years. Ever, actually. You haven't showered ever. And... You got, you got saints and martyrs and church leaders saying, Jesus is the son of unicorns. That, yeah, so they're pretty, they're pretty woven up deep. So we get a lot of written folklore in the bestiaries that are talking about unicorns, which are either like mockingly or seriously tying it to Jesus, and also church figures that are very legitimately being like, no, this is Jesus. I would also like to digress for a moment about um, the Islamic unicorns at the same time because that I also found really interesting because they're pulling from the same traditions, obviously, uh, both Christianity and Islam developed from Judaic beliefs and as we see in this timeline, like a lot of the bestiaries are overlapping. So in the Islamic world, unicorns are equally as popular as a part of folklore because they're building off the same symbols but it's a lot it's a lot less weird 
I'd say. It's a lot less, it's a lot less focused on the seduction. So we have, we actually get this whole sort of like pantheon of one-horned animals in Arabic manuscripts. Um, there was one called the Karkadan, which is more like a rhino. That one is most closely associated with the myth of the unicorn because it is also associated with maidens, also associated with having horn filled with medicinal qualities. And we have the Al Mirage, which is more like a jackalope. It's a big hare with a single horn. And then we also have the Shad Havar, which is like a large cat type thing. And I liked this bit. And you can play the horn like a flute. And all of these are from Islamic bestiaries. Like these same things where bestiaries were like popping off around the globe medievally. But here's sort of the split is um, we shouldn't forget about the doctrine that you can't have any figural representations of either humans or animals in Islam. So that has, of course, definitely heavily influenced the progression of Islamic art. And that's why there's a greater division in the Islamic world between folk representations of mythic animals and seeing drawings of these in like manuscripts versus their usage and reference in religious spaces. So, you know, in Islam, they're not really working with the unicorn image in the same way. Then we start seeing um, a lot of these mythical animals, specifically on mosaics in monasteries, baptistries, cathedrals, basilicas. It's, in my opinion, sort of a beautiful mixing of the biblical and the profane. We see early icons of unicorns everywhere from Syria to uh, what's modern-day Libya to Constantinople to Rome. And it's, I, I think that's really beautiful that they weren't pushed out of the church. Anyways, but between Jesus' death and the subsequent like 800 years or so, unicorns become biblical canon and are referred to especially in the Byzantine church, which, as we remember, is about to have a moment. She's about to have a moment. Let's just back it up, though, to remember that the origins of the unicorn are still very deeply tied into this seduction story involving the maiden, but at the same time, the church is also trying to push the narrative that the unicorn is Jesus, because, you know, people are... Classic story, it's like you adapt you adapt church teachings to what's really culturally relevant. Um, like the last time I went to church, the priest made a Game of Thrones reference in his sermon. And this is basically that. It's just you see the references to unicorns go up. But it's like, there's, it's a, it's a symbol that has constantly been wrapped up in sexuality and messaging around um, like chastity and love and things like that. And so it's, it's, it's at the same time, it's like, what? They got to work a little bit. They got to work a little bit to make that uh, canonically Jesus, you know? So um, with the bestiaries really going off, you see them depicted with maidens. And at the same time, there is also a medieval obsession with Christ's sexuality, which is very, like, the incarnation is the the moment for the church right now in the medieval you know we're now we're moving along we're around like 1100 
in, in the Renaissance later, there's like a tidal wave of depictions of like Christ's genitals and the incarnation from like the late medieval time to like the Renaissance is the chief subject of preaching at this time. And Christ's aggressive humanness being put onto the image of the unicorn is like inevitably people are writing fanfics. So the bestiaries are writing about how a virgin needs to be tied to a tree and upon finding her, the unicorn will either lay down with her, take that to mean what you will, or impale her. And increasingly, the unicorns are being depicted along with pomegranate trees, which is a pagan or just like long-standing symbol of fertility, and also the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. If anybody is into, uh, you know, contemporary readings of the book of Genesis, it just sort of says in the original Hebrew, it's like a red fruit. And um, in the area, that would have probably been a pomegranate. So anyways, we see unicorns being more and more uh, depicted alongside pomegranates, symbols of fertility and the forbidden fruit, and also oak trees and holly trees, which are associated with the oak king and holly king, which were um, pagan personifications of the winter and summer across Europe. And then the more lewd bestiaries are suggesting that the unicorn flocks to the maiden, basically because it's horny and just attracted to the odor of virginity and is like saying it's it's like a I don't I don't know I don't want to get into it I don't want to get into the sex the sex lives of unicorns I'm not going there so despite these um church depictions of the supposed holy hunt which is re re-looking at uh the virgin capture of the unicorn as an allegory for Christ the original sexual significance is not lost like these these associations with fertility and, um, you know, maidens getting pregnant, stuff like that. It's the bestiaries are really pushing the unholy hunt. And some people are like, is this an allegory for lust overcome by spiritual love? Or is it, um, is it just like lust winning the day? It's, it's also spreading into a story that if you're a pure suitor, you'll basically get laid by virgins. And um, that's also the context that the tapestries at the Met were made in. So people think that they were made for a wedding. Like, very romantic. It's like, oh, you're pure of heart. You get laid now. Yay. Obviously, the church wasn't too stoked about this, that they're like, oh, we have unicorns in all of our churches and we have unicorns in the Bible but unicorns are like really being used in like pop culture as like th- these literally like horned up animals um so they 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 got to do some damage control with that and it's sort of this funny battle of the bands going on with um the church which obviously has its fingers like so up in the lives of medieval humans it's like really bearing down on uh no this is about being pure of heart this is about christ becoming incarnate in like a mythical form that is uh like incomprehensible to humans and things like that and like the virgin is the virgin mary and it's just them being really close together and then people being like no this is about like man's quest for virgins and like just wanting to get laid and all the hoops you have to jump through for that 
according to like the medieval sexism um so understandably the the church was like we kind of got to cut this out so following the protestant reformation uh there's the council of trent which was held between 1545 and 1563 i did not know the council of trent went on for almost two decades it was like 25 sessions of all of the hoidiest hoidiest theologians talking about what the christian church should become it was basically like the embodiment of the counter-reformation and during this this time the counter-reformation king johan johans molanis from um i think from belgium too same place as the tapestries oddly uh goes to the council of trent and he is uh he is remembered in art history as somebody who just really dulled church art he was like we got to standardize christian art like we have to we have to make the virgin mary look the same way we have to make jesus look the same way these are the ways that they're okay to be depicted these are the ways they're not and he's specifically like what the hell is going on with these unicorns he's like um y'all hello we we cannot know so He's basically like, if the Catholic Church, the new Catholic Church, what is going to consider itself like the church supreme, if we're going to have sacred images, we can't have these like lewd images of, you know, unicorns about people being like, ha ha ha, like they're laughing in our faces, guys. They're laughing at us. So he gives minutely detailed instructions on like what artists for the Catholic Church should be able to depict. And keep in mind, at the same time, Protestantism is swinging the other direction with art, which was like, we don't need the the grandeur of Catholicism and, you know, the formerly, like, Byzantine church. We just need, like, you know, pure, plain, you know, wooden buildings, pews, like, very, very somber, very austere. So... At this time, medieval Europe is just sort of splitting between the Catholic Church being like, we need our art to be not so folksy and a little bit more on the nose, biblically. And then we have the Protestant Church being like, simply no art. So unfortunately, the way that people were consuming culture was because most people aren't reading right now, you know? So the primary way people are engaging with culture is through image and they just said pull the plug on that image so 1563 they're like kill it no more unicorns no more unicorns um also keep in mind that the churches protestant and catholic alike are the main lawmaking bodies so it's like you can imagine how many unicorn image things are probably getting destroyed around this time they just don't want it. And at the same time, bestiaries are on their way out right around the same time, around 1500, and pretty much fade into non-existence. So there's no, there's no real safe space for unicorns anymore. So what had been a really dominant cultural symbol for a good while, especially since about like 400 BC to, you know, 1500, so that, that whole millennia, they were they were eating they were simply eating then 
let's just pull the plug. So I think it's almost kind of beautiful in a way that they came back at all because then we sort of only get dribs and drebs of unicorn lore until like the 1960s or so and then they really come back at least in America yeah I don't know it was it was mainly with the publication of uh I think Peter Beagle is the guy who wrote it Peter Beagle's Last Unicorn and they just stay a symbol in like poetry and things like that and also it was sort of endearing to think about like oh why are unicorns associated with like pride and queer events um and aside from unicorns artistically being associated with you know rainbows them being a symbol of sexuality that sort of like was banished for being lewd and then like came back you know I think in that way the symbol of the unicorn's legacy is a bit carried on but um let me let me read a poem by one of the scholars who I was reading who seemed really really mad about the progression of unicorns from being like this elusive thing to them being like bastardized in the pop culture of today anyways to digress here we go unicorns by Teresa Noel Roberts perhaps the greatest proof of our decadence is that unicorns have become trite somehow they've managed to commercialize unicorns cocktail napkins children's toys unicorns are hot sellers and the real tragedy is, they've become comic. Shetland ponies with a horn. Once, only a virgin could achieve a unicorn. Today, any little whore who can plunk down the money can have one plastered across her overworked chest in metallic colors. What can be used for a culture which sells Christ symbols at phase? for 750. Yeah, so um so that's uh, a thing. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't really know what I wanted to get across with this other than um that some of the unicorn scholars from the 1960s were like really upset about this turn of events, like really upset about um the like Dungeons and Dragons resurgent of medieval medieval critters um that <laughs> led to any little whore having a unicorn tattooed on their chest blah, blah 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 yeah also i find concluding with that poem incredibly ironic because of the lewd history associated with the unicorns it's like perhaps the little tramps getting unicorn tattoos are doing more of a history to like the the historical progression of unicorns than the church or like associations with divinity or purity ever did yeah i'd also like to sort of speculate a little bit about why unicorns have become so potent of a symbol cross-culturally i mean what we see from like truly like japan to spain um not necessarily the like equine version that we see in medieval art but um just a single horned beast and i thought that was really interesting and uh sort of speaking to the concept of an axis mundi perhaps which is like a 
a cosmic pole that like unites the celestial sphere like hell realms and earth that's also a really potent cultural symbol um i mean you see in a lot of cultures the symbol of like verticality as divinity um and so sort of going along with this axis mundi like when i was thinking why why is a single horn stuck on an animal like such an incredible thing you know like out of all the things that you could do to an animal it's like why would it be that i wonder if it's sort of speaking to a symbol of connection with what is higher and like a sort of unity with it i mean if you if you just go to like basic symbolic like subconscious symbolic work it's like what what do you think of when you look at an animal with like this beautiful horn going from two feet above its head it's like immediately draws your eyes towards an ascension or upwards i don't know i don't know now i ramble but towards the end of this while i was done reading about like lewd unicorns and all of the ways that um medieval bestiaries in particular wanted to describe them i i do feel like it's um a very a very fun thing that now i can like walk around and see unicorns plastered everywhere and i guess have an appreciation for all of the like nuance and all of the layered meaning that goes into that one particular image and i hope that resonates with some of you as well and i hope you enjoyed this episode i hope it was cohesive enough because i'm not gonna lie the the people that write about unicorns are not the most concise people you know a lot of them are getting swept up in the fantasy and it was at times a lot to sift through so um i'm also releasing this episode a bit late because of that but yeah hopefully you too feel inundated with too much information about unicorns now (laughs) if you liked this episode and i hope you did I hope you uh, keep up with Fringe Religion. Once again, my name is Zelda Reed, and this is a deep passion project of mine. I am not doing this for um, any sort of reason other than the fact that I love researching these things, and I love making religious studies a bit more accessible to the public and a bit more fun to engage with. Um, So if you can support us financially that would be so much appreciated. If you want to find me on Patreon, it is patreon.com slash fringe religion. There you'll be able to find access to bonus content, you know, staying in contact with the community around fringe religion, get some merch, all those little things on the side that people do love. And if you want to send any questions into the podcast or keep up with us on social media, our Instagram is, I keep saying our, it's just me. My Instagram is fringe.religion on Instagram, and you can email me any questions that you might have or any suggestions for guests at fringereligionpod at gmail.com. Any and all support you can throw towards this is much appreciated, whether it is a five-star review or if you just click share on Spotify or if you want to subscribe to the Patreon, I would appreciate if you kept the lights on. That would be so cool. So cool. Um, so before we go, I'm going to answer some questions from listeners that were sent in throughout the week that 
I feel were, um, I don't know, kind of, I don't know, just interesting. So, um, somebody asked, what religion are you? And it's a complicated bag, but I don't come from any particular religious belief system that I'm working with here. I have my own practices that are a bit of a blend of all the things that I've been shown throughout my lifetime, which has been a great deal of many things. So just know that when I'm talking on the podcast, it is not coming from a particular dogmatic point of view or from um, any sort of personal ties to things. So... I hope that doesn't matter to most of you, though. And then I had a question about last episode, the interview with Brian Cotnor on alchemy. Somebody wanted to know, is the Emerald Tablet widely available? I feel like you could have Googled that. But the Emerald Tablet that I was speaking about, particularly in the episode, was a banner that Brian made, I think, when he was around, like, 17. So it shows how deep his alchemical roots go. Um it's kind of like the lord's prayer for alchemy like you just see it everywhere it's written everywhere but the one that he has is like one of a kind and really beautiful um so that particular version of the emerald tablet is not widely available although it's in one of his zines i think yeah it's printed in the back of one of his zines so you can find his zines online then find the one that has the emerald tablet things like that um and if you subscribe to my patreon you get more questions answered there. I'll probably be posting Q&A episodes so you can get a little bit more of an in-depth peek into all the questions that you might have about me or the project or the different guests, etc, etc. So yeah, that's it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye.